0: Well, one thing that's uh, interesting to think about is what things would have been like, at least from our perspective, if a particular ruler had never existed. For example, what if Hitler had never been born? Or let's just say he had been born, but he never came to power. Or what would have taken place had uh, President Kennedy not been assassinated and had gone on and was elected for a second term? How would that have changed the Vietnam War and would the 60s have been different? Would the 70s be different? And so on. And of course, we know that that's uh, theologically, we, we, we're limited in the way we can think about that. But it's, it's interesting to think about what could have been at least from our perspective. And I don't think it's wrong to think about that if we do so biblically, if we do so in light of the absolute sovereignty of God, knowing that it could not have been different from His perspective. In particular, I'm thinking about God's absolute sovereignty over the heart and actions of those who bear rule over us. And so what I want us to do this morning, just for a few minutes, is to get get into the elevator and to go up to the throne room and to look down and to get heaven's perspective on those who bear civil rule over us. Because I do think that sometimes one of our problems can be is that we look up to heaven's throne from the earthly throne. And that's where we try to get our perspective. And that's really backwards, isn't it? That's upside down. We need to always go up into God's throne room and to look down on all the craziness that goes on in the name of civil rule and and even all those things that are good when we see them and to get heaven's perspective. And I think this verse, and my understanding of this verse, helps us to do just that. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand and as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wills. This is a verse of Scripture that teaches what we can see fleshed out in all of Scripture, that the king is controlled by the absolute sovereignty of God. And by extension, we can apply this to all of those who are in positions of civil rule and authority. And as we meditate on this one verse of this morning, we're going to talk about the description of the king's heart and the direction of the king's heart. The description of the king's heart and the direction of the king's heart. Now, the description of the king's heart, and of course the king's heart is metaphorical. It speaks of the king's inner man, the king's thinking, the king's emotions, his affections, his desires, his volition, his will, his capacity to make decisions and to make choices. And that's what's in view here, the king's heart. And we're told, first of all, what it is like It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he wills. And what that's telling us is that the king's heart is like a channel of water. Now, what does a channel do for water? It directs that water to a predetermined destination. If you want to get water from here to over there, you can dig a trench. You can put concrete in it. You can make it a channel so that that water will get to It's predetermined destination. And this text says that's what the king's heart is like. It's like a channel of water. It is under control so that his heart ends up going to a predetermined destination. Now this brings up a very important question that we need to know the answer to is, and it it is this, who's in control of the king's heart? Where is the king's heart going? And to answer that, we also need to see in this text where the king's heart is lying. It says that the king's heart is where? It's in the hand of the Lord. And of course, we know our Lord, uh, God does not have a physical hand, but it's metaphorical language. God is in control. The Lord is in control of the king's heart. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Can you swallow that? The Lord has the king's thinking has the king's affections, has the king's motives, and has the king's choices in his hand. That's absolute sovereignty. Now that's the description of the king's heart. But notice in the second half of the verse that we're told about the direction of the king's heart. What's the direction of the king's heart? As the rivers of water, the Lord turns it whithersoever he wills. Just as Man makes a channel so that water reaches its predetermined destination. The Lord controls the king's heart so that the king does precisely what the Lord has predetermined to be done. We'll say that again. The Lord controls the king's heart so that the king does precisely what the Lord has predetermined the king to do. He turns it whithersoever he wishes, wherever he wills. Now, of course, you're theological students. You know that this raises theological questions and problems and tensions. And a good theologian knows this. Don't solve tensions that the Lord has never called you to solve. Because what happens? You end up in error. When we're presented with tensions in Scripture, we're to bow before them, recognizing that we are finite creatures and that we don't know how to tie all the loose ends together. In fact, we don't even know where all the ends are in order to tie them. But this does indeed raise some questions. It raises some questions. And we just simply have to accept what the text says, to bow before the footstool of Jehovah and accept this verse and understand it in in accord with the plain and common sense understanding of words. Whatever a person is, in in terms of a position of civil authority, his thoughts, his desires, his motives, those things are in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord takes them to their predetermined destination, so that his purpose is accomplished. Let's think about this just for a few moments theologically, though we can't, Get rid of all all of the tension and mystery. But this verse does, in some sense, give us some balance, theologically. First of all, think about the humanity of the Lord's control. The humanity of the Lord's control. Think about the imagery of the channels of water. What that powerfully suggests is that the Lord does not work against the king's will when he controls him. In other words, the Lord does not internally or externally force the king to make decisions against the king's will, does he? He doesn't force him and he doesn't want to do it, but the Lord has got him in his hand and he's going to force him down that channel. No, this is neither external nor internal coercion in which the king is going in a direction that the king doesn't want to go. The king is acting freely as if his heart... We're not in the hands of the Lord. He doesn't even know it often. Think of how the imagery suggests this. I've heard this years ago and I thought it was a good way to to explain it. When water flows through that channel, that water is acting freely, isn't it? That water is doing what water naturally does in accord with the nature and properties of water. And even though it's being controlled, it's as though it's not being controlled. It's simply flowing, following the path of what? You ever had a leak in your uh, house? Where does that water go? The path of least resistance. It makes a huge mess, doesn't it? That's Water's doing what it's doing. Even when it's in a channel, it is flowing freely as if it's not being controlled at all. What does this imagery suggest about the king? It illustrates that when a king, someone in position of civil authority, makes a decision, he does so freely in accord with his own nature. Whether he's righteous or wicked, he has choose, uh, freely chosen a course of action. But this also reveals the mystery of the Lord's control. There's a mystery that we can't solve. What's the mystery? Two, two things happen. The king's will is done, right? Right? Who, else, who else's will is done? The Lord's will is done. The king's will is done. The Lord's will is done. This includes when the king makes a righteous decision, and this includes when a king makes a wicked decision. Again, your theological students, most of your theologians or pastors were all reformed, so I trust you know and understand the two aspects or whatever you want, terminology you want to use of God's will in Scripture. There's his will of precept, right? God's will of precept is all that He has revealed to be our duty to do. Now, is that will of God always done on earth? Well, of course not. We wouldn't be in the mess we're in if that were the case. That's God's will of precept. But then there's also what we could call God's will of purpose. And that's all that the Lord has ordained to happen in human history including the good and evil acts of men. Now is that will, is that aspect of the will of God always done? Yes, God's will of purpose is always done. What Judas did to Jesus was in fulfillment of God's divine purpose, His will of purpose. Certainly the writer to the Proverbs, I don't think, is suggesting that the Lord directs the heart of the king so that His will of precept is always done. The Lord directs the heart of the king so that his will of purpose is always accomplished. And what makes this even more mind-blowing are two other biblical truths that are certainly necessary qualifications. This doesn't make God the author of sin, does it? James 1.14, God tempts no man, neither can he be tempted by any man. We must never charge God with being the origin of the king's sinful decisions and actions. God's hands are unstained by the king's wickedness. But then secondly, God will judge the king for the king's sin. Makes me think of that interesting situation in the incident in the life of King David. You remember when he numbered Israel and he sinned? The Bible says that the the Lord moved or incited David to do this. And David did it, and he sinned, and then the Lord judged him and judged Israel for it. Remember reading that? What makes that even more mysterious is when you go to the parallel text uh, in 1 Chronicle, Chronicles chapter 21, and you read that it was Satan who incited David to do it. Now, how in the world do you piece that all together and solve the mystery? Well, you can't. God wasn't the author of David's sin, yet God so moved David to do it. David was responsible. Israel and David were judged. It's a great mystery how the Lord directs the king's heart. Remember what he said about Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, and on through that text, where he's using Assyria as his rod to judge his people, and he says Assyria doesn't even know that they're being used that way. Assyria, they have one purpose. And yet, in so doing, they're accomplishing God's purpose. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. There's a mystery there. He's not the author of the sin, yet at the same time he will judge the king and those nations who sin against him. And so there's great mystery of the Lord's control. But then there's also the divinity of the Lord's control. The Bible says that the Lord that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wills, however he pleases. In other words, the divine purpose always prevails. I'm going to say that again. God's divine purpose for the king and for kingdoms on this world, his purposes for it are always fulfilled. Never do those purposes fall to the ground. Perhaps the imagery of channels is also meant to illustrate boundaries. The Lord not only has the king's heart in his hand, but the Lord is in control of all the external influences on the king. He's also in control of all of the boundaries that may cause kings to say, I don't think I'm going to do that because that's too risky, or I would do that, but this would happen. Who's in control of all the circumstances that influence the king's heart? The Lord is. He has him in a channel, and he cannot go past those boundaries. Every man, as it were, is on a chain and can go no further than what God has determined. Now, that's just a simple exposition of the text. We have the, the, the description of the king's heart. It's in the hand of the Lord. We have the direction of the king's heart. The Lord turns it, whithersoever He wills, so that His will of purpose is always accomplished. Now, do you think that this is a relevant text for the time in which we live? We have had one crazy year, 2021. Just, gave a, just wrote a, an elders' report for our annual meeting at the end of February, and I divided that report up into a year to remember. I probably should put in parentheses, forget. <laughs> And then a year to anticipate. Who who would have thought all of the things that we've had to face this year politically and with COVID-19 and with the elections? And there's a lot of unrest. But brethren, a text like this is a text upon which we can rest our souls. Civil authority is in the hand of the Lord. And He will turn those hearts in whatever direction that He pleases. And for those of us who are grounded in the rich theology of Scripture, this is one of the places that we should apply the wonderful truth of God's absolute sovereignty over men. Is not the Bible filled with this truth? One king after another, whether he be humble or whether he be high and mighty, God always proves that He is the king. And that He does in the armies of heaven... And among the inhabitants of the earth, as he pleases, and no one can stay his hand, and no one can put him into the courtroom and say, now, what have you done? What are you doing? He doesn't even owe us an explanation. What a God we serve. And as we think in terms of practical application, just think with me about a few things. First of all, there is always a divine purpose behind every decision of the king. Now notice I didn't say the king always has a divine purpose or that the king's always conscious of the divine purpose. But there's always a divine purpose behind every decision of the king. When you get a chance, go read Psalm 105 and consider the various ways that kings have played key roles in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. Think about divine protection. Think about Abraham with his remaining sin and he told those lies to Pharaoh and to Abimelech. Was God not in control of that situation protecting the seed of the woman? Don't you see that? It's bigger than just Abraham's story. The Lord was protecting that Genesis 3.15 promise from Abraham's stupidity. Right? Divine protection. The Lord was able to move in. You remember he sent that dream to Abimelech to, to withhold him from Sarah. The Lord sometimes causes kings to act in certain ways and civil authorities unknown to them in which God's people are being divinely protected. Listen, no one can lay a hand on God's people unless God permits it. God must permit it. What about divine promotion? Can you think of a story in which the kings and the rulers of this earth were under God's control? to promote someone to a place of leadership that brought great blessing upon God's people. You know the story of Joseph. I mean, things go from bad to worse. And from worse, and let's get real southern, southern, worser. (laughs) It just gets worse. He's going downhill and he gets forgotten in the whole issue with Potiphar's wife. And yet, what was God doing? God was orchestrating all of that to get Joseph to the place, second in power, to do much good and to save many people alive. And it was even, again, bigger than what was going on there. The Lord was protecting His salvation plan. The Lord can use the decisions of kings and others and guides their hearts to even get God's people into positions of authority to bear great influence for the gospel. What about divine power? If I were to ask you, what story in the Bible reveals God's control over a human king in which God clearly had a purpose to display His mighty power. Have to be Pharaoh, right? For this reason, I mean, God. the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you know what that means? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> That's what it says. And why did He do that? Romans tells us. And in the book of Exodus tells us, I've raised you up so that I can make my power known. I want people to see how grand and awesome and powerful I am in putting down this wicked king. You see what he did to King Nebuchadnezzar when he humbled him and Nebuchadnezzar was brought to that place of bowing before this sovereign God. So when we think about king's decisions, before we start getting political, before we think of our constitution, let's think about what is God, maybe what is God up to? Is it promotion? Is it protection? Is this in some way that God's going to bear His mighty arm of power? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So there's a divine purpose behind every decision of the king. We may not always be able to discern what that purpose is. Maybe it's it's, this is happening over here, and this is happening over here, and this is happening over here, and God's weaving it all together for a particular purpose. But we must always keep that as a matter of faith. God's in control. But we also need to be humble, realizing that the Lord's purpose sometimes is for the purpose of judgment. Proverbs 28, 2, for the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, the state thereof shall be prolonged. Charles Bridges, commenting on this verse, wrote, a quick succession of princes Rises by treason, usurpation, or natural course. Hence, a change of laws. Spoilation of privileges, taking away of rights. Imposition of new burdens, the new normal, right? Or wasteful expenditure of treasure or blood. So, man, he must have been living in our day. Man traces those evils to political causes. But God's voice speaks from the cloud. This thing is from me. For the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. The bloody contentions in our early history which swept the flower of our nobility and those of a later date which overturned for a time our long-established institutions, did they not betoken the same awful scourge of national transgression? Would that nation had learned of her own records of bygone days, the sound and practical lessons of repentance with all its blessed fruits? Think about all the craziness that goes on in our land. The switching of office from one extreme to another. And one man gets in and he does one thing. Another man gets in and he undoes it all. Four years from now, eight from years from now, it can go totally in a different direction. We live in crazy political times. No stability. And you know what? We deserve every bit of it only. You can't slaughter millions of babies and have the blood crying up from heaven and wonder why... God does not bless America more than He does. And I think as God's people, though we are no longer wicked from our hearts, we're seeking to please God, we do have to be humble. Before we begin to, to shoot out arrows at wicked leaders and wicked causes and wicked policies, we need to be humble enough to say, Oh Lord, could it be that this succession of princes is due to the, even the lethargy of your people? In what ways have our remaining sin contributed to this? And so we need to put ourselves under God's chastening hand and realize that the heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord sometimes to bring chastening upon His people, to cause all of us to reflect seriously upon our own sins and to ask, in what ways have my sins contributed to the mess that we're in? And to go humbly before the footstool of Jehovah and say, Lord, is this one of the reasons you've channeled the water in this way? Another application is this. The gospel prospers regardless of who sits on the human throne because God is always on His. The gospel promises, the gospel prospers regardless of who sits on the human throne because God is always on His. Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs. The Bible says that the, the wicked rulers have all gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. You, you had the conservatives and you had the liberals, and they all went up against Jesus. You had the religious, you had the pagan, and they all came upon him. This world thinks that we all agree on what justice and love and peace is. That's a, that's a problem. Don't we all want the same thing for our kids, lost or saved? I don't think so. Well, I want my kids to prosper. Well, what's your definition of that? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, if Jesus were on this planet again today in a state of humiliation, the godless conservatives and the open liberals would all gang up against Him. Don't be mistaken. They've all gathered against the Lord in His Christ, but He who sits in the heavens will laugh. He will enthrone His Son. He has enthroned His Son, and His Son will have the heathen for His inheritance. And you remember it was that text in the early church when they were being persecuted that when they gathered for corporate prayer in Acts 4, they quoted that text. And they said, Lord, Pontius Pilate and the people have gathered to do against the Christ as you have predetermined. And Why were they praying that? Why were they applying that? They were applying that because they realized, Lord, you're in control of human kings And we know that you're going to use their decisions to the furtherance of the gospel. Nothing shall stop the gospel. God does not need a certain form of government for his gospel to prosper. Jesus said, I will build my church, but only under a constitutional republic. No, he doesn't need any of that. Don't get me wrong. I want that. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But it prospers. Think about when... uh, you know, the religious leaders, they said, no, we're we're, we're not going to do this at Passover to Jesus. Guess when it happened <laughs> at Passover? You ever notice that in the Gospels? Not at Passover because of the people, but before it was over, it happened at Passover. Why? Because it was the will of God. God's gospel promises and purposes are always being fulfilled, regardless of who's on the human throne. He's working it all together. And that's why we, on the one hand, that's why we can be respectful to human authority. That's why Daniel could say, oh, king, live forever. That, that he, didn't, he didn't feel like he had to go against the king in an unbiblical way for the God's purposes to be fulfilled. And yet, it's also that reality that gives us the boldness to say with Peter, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then finally, be greatly encouraged by this. It's okay to groan as long as you're grounded. It's okay to groan as long as you're grounded. Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Nothing I've said should warrant a nonchalant attitude toward wicked rulers and their unprincipled decisions. In other words, we shouldn't hide behind God's sovereignty and excuse our lack of concern on God's sovereignty. And say, so, well, you know, God's in control. I don't think about such things. It's right for us to groan and to grieve when righteousness is not done by civil authorities. It is, it is right for us to groan and to grieve when God's word is not proclaimed and it's being trampled in the streets and sin is being paraded as that which is good. And we are to grieve but we are to grieve as those who remain grounded grounded a verse like this psalm Proverbs twenty-one, 21:1 the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the lord that is something that should that should be a firm rock so that we don't lose our footing and so that we don't lose our heads just as paul says we grieve not as those who have no hope term, in terms of the resurrection we grieve not as those not as those who do not believe in the sovereignty of god He's in absolute control. And so as we grieve, we do so on the firm foundation of knowing that God's will of purpose will be done. Christ will have all of His people gathered in the last day. The church will be built. The gospel will be proclaimed. His people will be sanctified. God's in control of it all. And as we grieve, we're supported by that faith. It's been said not long ago in the midst of all the COVID restrictions and so forth earlier this year that that we ought to be those who have our heads about us. We should be the most grounded and settled and secured because we're people of faith. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this reminder of Your absolute sovereignty over the King and civil authority. Lord, I pray our hearts will be encouraged by that and that in the midst of all of the craziness of our own nation, the wickedness that abounds among rulers and people, Lord, the absolute chaos and the senselessness of so much that goes on. Lord, I thank you for a reminder that as though we are burdened by these things, I pray, Lord, that, and I thank you for the, a fresh view of the God who sits on the throne. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with this and that we would take this truth and apply it to all of our lives and to every aspect of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.